Happy New Year, everyone. I am Emma Watkins, and you are listening to Forgotten Convicts. This is the second episode focused on the agency of pauper emancipists, how they attempted to take control of their lives. If you haven't already, it may be helpful to listen to episode one, which really gives a background to what we will be discussing today. So, From the avoidance of pauper institutions then to the complaints about the conditions within them to breaking the rules and causing disruption, pauper emancipists constantly demonstrated their agency. Despite spending much of their time and lives within institutions, so as former convicts or perhaps because of it, they knew how to push back against the system. So this installment is really about conflict. We will also look at one of those complainants, Francis Freeman, who frequently discharged himself as he pleased and returned whenever he needed to these institutions um, to suit his own needs. Historians John Hargraves and Alan Piper have done substantial work on pauper emancipists and they found that many refused to enter charitable institutions. So for example, William Wheeler refused because he had had enough of the government as a former convict. Because of this, many paupers survived on the outside through begging and sometimes through petty theft. Many wanted to avoid the stigma of poverty and penal association, as well as the bad food, the bad conditions, and the bad treatment. And while some sought to avoid entry to such places, others had little choice, but they still demonstrated and expressed their agency through escaping, absconding, and breaking the rules. In short, many used these institutions to suit their own needs. And one way that um, pauper emancipists attempted to use these institutions to their own ends was by attempting to control which institutions they ended up in. So, for example, in the 1850s in northern Tasmania, male invalids who were seeking aid would usually be sent to Cornwall Hospital. But due to limited space, it was decided by those in authority that they would be sent to Impression Bay probation system and post-1857 instead to Port Arthur. So where the overflow would be sent changed over time, essentially, from Impression Bay to Port Arthur after 1857. But both of these institutions had very strong penal associations and many pauper emancipists didn't make the journey when they were instructed to do so. Others returned after they arrived at these institutions and others disappeared even before removal was due to take place. And often they would then reappear later seeking temporary readmittance back at Cornwall Hospital. So once they saw the danger of removal was gone, they would return to Cornwall Hospital. So they were essentially seeking um, to avoid removal to these penal associated um, institutions. However, resisting this move could lead them open to the Vagrancy Act and also to starvation if they couldn't um, work on their own account. And if pauper emancipists became subject to the Vagrancy Act, then they could be transported to any institution against their will. And this was true for females as well. So females were sent to Cascades Female Factory or to the Launceston Female House of Correction. 
And removing the poor, the disabled and the old to these penal stations really mirrored the practice of internal secondary transportation, which was used for those found guilty of further crimes in the colony after their initial transportation. Because of this, Piper argued that for all intents and purposes, these individuals were being found guilty of the crime of poverty and old age. And it was not always possible then for these pauper emancipists to control their fate, and indeed restrictions did tighten over time. In the 1860s, leaving an institution when residents pleased was relatively easy, and this was because institutional officers had no right to keep them there. And being able to leave and readmit themselves was an important freedom for these individuals. But this practice didn't go unnoticed, and more rigid regulations were introduced over time. So superintendents of these pauper establishments wanted to prevent invalids seeking admission in colder months, and subsequently seeking discharge in the summer months for seasonal work. As Piper argued, the pauper emancipist aim was to avoid further institutionalization. So Francis Freeman, who we'll discuss in more detail shortly, is an example of this. In the early 1870s, Francis entered the pauper system and he made his way around a number of these establishments. He entered and left Brookfield, Port Arthur, Newtown pauper establishment and Cascades. He entered and left and re-entered each institution repeatedly on at least 13 occasions. Despite paupers trying to take control of their lives in this way, though, there were obstacles. So from the late 1870s, there was an increasing tendency to send refractory invalids to jail. So, for example, in 1882, 10 inmates of the Launceston Invalid Depot were sentenced to the Launceston jail for regulation breaches, so breaking the rules in these institutions. And these harsh measures, though, didn't prevent frequent rule breaking. It was common for inmates to leave, get drunk, and then return to the establishments. And more minor infractions were, for example, refusing to empty their chamber pots, often in response to stopping of tobacco rations. Minor offences usually resulted in internal punishments, though. So, for example, while at Newtown Pauper Establishment in 1882, Francis Freeman was given 48 hours confinement for being idle and disorderly, a common form of rule-breaking. As well as rule-breaking, inmates complained about the conditions and the treatment of these places. Both Piper and Hargraves point out that when inmates complained, which was relatively rare, or at least relatively rarely recorded, the complainant was discredited. And as with all institutional records, we must consider what records were kept and why, and we must always have that in the back of our minds. Nevertheless, some complaints were reinforced by advocates such as clergymen and doctors. So Philip Smith supported the right of inmates to question the administration, writing, quote, A pauper establishment is not a jail and should be conducted as to challenge public scrutiny and prevent and even invite complaint from the paupers themselves. Unsurprisingly, male pauper emancipists were not the only ones to complain. Harriet Smith wrote to the chief secretary on behalf of another inmate, Mary Taylor, who 
she claimed was cruelly beaten about the head which caused her death. Um, she had bruises and um, cuts she claimed and she added that the men and women mixed at night at the establishment there was alcohol smuggled in and there was favoritism as well and Harriet White absconded for what was the fifth time because in her words the place was quote no better than a brothel all these charges were refuted by those in authority and it was argued that Mary Taylor had actually died of heart disease rather than through being beaten about the head. Francis Freeman was another complainant and he complained about the urine tubes in the dormitory, the cold, the filthy state of the smoking rooms, the improper license given to wardsmen who were often residents themselves. In return, he was described as an opium eater who absconded regularly to supply his addiction. So Pierce and Doyle and historians argued that those in authorities sought to undermine individual complainants as troublesome and deviant and dismiss their complaints. And this was a relatively easy task for them as most of the residents were former convicts and so in the eyes of the public had bad reputations. However, what is undeniable, though, is that these residents led very full and interesting lives. And Francis Freeman is an example of this. He was born back in 1811, approximately, near Norwich in the UK. And he was born to a big family of seven brothers and sisters. Before his transportation sentence in Norwich City Quarter Sessions, which was for stealing clothes in 1843, he did already have a previous offence. He had been in prison for stealing a decanter for six weeks he was imprisoned. Before his transportation sentence to Australia, Francis was held on the Fortitude Hulk. At this time, he was described as being single. He was described as having a bad character, but with respectable connections. And it was also noted that at this time, he was aged 29, and he was previously a part of the 24th Regiment. He is also said to have been employed as a solicitor's clerk, and that he could read and write, unsurprising given his um, employment. On the voyage over, he was sent on the Gilmore ship. The surgeon superintendent described him as useful and very good. And he was five foot six. He was a Protestant. And at this point, he was described as 32. So there is a discrepancy in age here, but this was often the case in these various records. Two years after arrival in Tasmania, at this point known as Van Diemen's Land, he was found drunk and given 10 days solitary confinement. Then in 1846, he committed larceny. And for this, he was given a harsher sentence of six weeks imprisonment with hard labor. Nevertheless, he did earn his ticket of leave in 1848 and a certificate of freedom followed in 1850. However, he was given a 20-year secondary transportation sentence in 1852. Francis had been caught uttering a forged check with intent to defraud. His trade at this point was given as a clerk and in another record as a schoolmaster. So different um, employments recorded there. He was now aged 43 and described as a widower. So evidently he did marry at some point and this was 
fairly uncommon for male residents of these pauper establishments. While under his secondary transportation sentence, he absconded. This was in 1857. And he was given seven days solitary confinement because of this. A few months later, he was given more solitary confinement for drunkenness, common offence by inmates. Then Francis was convicted of forging another cheque in 1858. This time it was stated that he was to be kept at Port Arthur for 10 years, quite a severe punishment. And it was not until 1867 that he reappeared in the records again. And he reappeared in the police gazettes for an unknown offence, but he was given 15 months at Port Arthur again. Then for no given reason, it states in his conduct record, quote, to serve 15 months probation for a free pardon by order of the governor, 27th of March, year 67. And he was indeed given a free pardon in 1858. But as I said, the reason for this I haven't yet found, so I will still be looking out for that. As discussed earlier, Francis appeared in the pauper system then in the early 1870s. And he revolved through these institutions until he finally died of sinilis in 1884. And this was at Newtown Pauper Establishment. At this point, he was described as 76 and as a former tutor. So that's what his former employment was described as. So the complaints of these paupers in these institutions, though, must be pointed out, did not always fall on deaf ears. So sometimes, as I've described, they were discredited. But this wasn't always the case. So, for example, in the early 1890s, the inmates of Launceston, an invalid depot, protested against the quality of salt meat that they were given. And this resulted in the medical officer inspecting the meat Um, which was found to be unfit for human consumption. And as Piper points out, individual complaints were rare and tended not to go anywhere. But mass protest or threatening mass protest took place. And this at least, quote, maintained the status quo on some occasions. So it had more of an effect then. It was, in effect, policing by consent, if you like. They needed the agreement of the residents to be able to run the institutions as a whole. Nevertheless, there was unofficial and official censorship of the invalid correspondence, so the mail coming in and out of these institutions. And while penal regulations did allow the review of prisoner mail, no such thing actually existed for pauper invalids, but it did still happen. And this was in order to try and minimise the complaints by the residents. So while it wasn't always easy and residents were not always successful, they did find their own ways of expressing themselves, often through working together to achieve their own ends and get some semblance of agency within these increasingly restrictive institutions. Thank you for listening to Forgotten Convicts. The next episode, so episode three, is going to focus on gender differences. So men and women, women and men, how did the experience differ? I look forward to welcoming you back in April. Thank you.